So, hi, I'm Michelle, if I don't know you, hello. Um, so, last time that trip happened was 2019, and Paul and I were on it, and I need to tell you the story of what happened. So, what, so they, were go, they were there for Shabbat, which is, that's how they say, Sabbath. And so, it, there's, when the Sabbath starts, they, they all get, people just gather at the Western Wall to like welcome in the Sabbath, and it's like this party. And so we had just, it was the day we had just gotten into Jerusalem. And I just have to tell you, because we can't make this up. Okay, and this is why you should go to Israel someday, because you just never know what's going to happen. So our bus comes in, we do a couple things, and then they're like, we're going to go welcome in the Sabbath at the Wall. And we're like, okay, like, we don't know what that means, but so excited. So, so we pull up and the, the guys and the girls are separate at the wall, so like all the boys go one way and me and a bunch of women go over here, and it is packed. There's just people everywhere, and the, the women are like in these circles, and they're like dancing. Like I've, you know, big fat Greek wedding, that's the last place I saw it, you know? So they're like dancing in these circles, and I kid you not, there is birds flying above these women as they're dancing, circling with them. I was like, I'm sorry, what? Like, sh what? So I don't know if that always happens, but when, that's what happened when I was there. But I was like, you just never know what's going to happen. But I'm like, I think in Israel, the creation actually worships the Lord. I, I just go like, I, don't, I have no other explanation except for, for what I experienced. But I was like, those birds are dancing with the daughters of Israel. There they were. So you never know. You should go. Um, all right. So... We are going to dive into this series. We're doing a series called Devoted, as, um, and as you just heard Drew read, we're going to, from Acts 2.42, one of the first things it says is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and so that's what we're going to do together. We are going to dive into the Word together and study the apostles' teaching, and if you were here last week, Tyler kind of set up this series, and we're going to start by studying the book of James. Um, I got to tell you, when I was in college, there was a, a guy that I was friends with, and he would, he would often, you know, we'd be at class or whatever, and he'd go, well, I'm going to go get into the Word. And I was like, okay. Often, all the time, I'm going to go get in the Word. And I think, man, this man's really holy. Like, he's always just getting into the Word. I found out years later, he had named his bed the Word, and he was just going to take a nap. <laughs> he's like, I'm going to get in the Word. And I was like, you little stinker. Anyway, <laughs> we're actually going to get into the Word of God, which I guess I should specify. Um, this was a really interesting sermon for me to prep for because I'm supposed to preach out of the book of James, James 1, and I had to, I'm like, when I study the Word, what do I do? I had to like watch myself prepare, and so I'm just going to try to take you where the Lord took me as I prepared. And so the first thing that I did was I read the book of James. I just read James 1. It's where I started. So I just sat down and I read it. And then I started to kind of dig in. And so one of the first things I did is, and Tyler actually alluded to this last week, was when I read, when I study, one of the things I do is I think about the context. Like, who wrote this? Why are they writing it? Who are they writing it to? And so I'm like, well, James was clearly written by James. And so I was like, well, you got to wonder which James. So there's one James that's really prominent in the New Testament. The one that comes to mind first is the James of James and John, who is the sons of Zebedee, if you know what I'm talking about. They are two of the disciples, and they are brothers. Now, John wrote the book of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation. So John is really righty. And 
I asked my friend Google, that James did not write this book. So maybe Brother John got all the good writing genes, or also James was the first disciple to be martyred. So he died in 44 AD, so he, maybe he also didn't have time. So, and interesting, he's called James the Greater. James the Greater did not write this book. Okay, another, there's another disciple called James, son of Alphaeus, or Alpheus. I don't really know. I don't speak that language, really. So there's another James that there's very little written about, except that he's James the Lesser. <laughs> so you're like, well, I guess he, we don't hear much about him. But I did learn in my studies that James the Greater basically means that he was like bigger, taller, and James the Lesser means like shorter, smaller, not like you're really cool and you're not so much. It didn't mean that. So, but apparently James, James, and John was either older or bigger. I think it's kind of like how we would be like, Hey, like, hey, little John, like, or like a John, you know, Jr., like little James Jr., little Jimmy. Like maybe the way we would say that, that's what they mean by James the Greater and James the Lesser. Okay, neither of those wrote this book. That was all for free. There you go. <laughs> so no charge. Turns out this book was written by Jesus' brother. Jesus had a brother named James, and he is who wrote this book. He was not a disciple. And I was like, well, what do we know about him? So interestingly, and I had to dig for this. So this is one of the things that happens when I read scriptures is I just dig. And, and I used to use concordances before the internet existed. Now I just Google things. So you got to use your brain when you Google. You got to pay attention because you, you can find an explanation for anything that says anything you want on, on the World Wide Web. So you got to be smart. But I often, when I Google things, I look it up and then I just start reading the verses that pop up when I, and then I, it's like going on a little scavenger hunt. So I went on a James scavenger hunt and y'all are coming with me. You ready? Okay. So brother James, we're going to go to Mark six. I hope you brought your Bible. If not, you're going to have to trust me more than maybe you do naturally. So we're going to go all over the place on my scavenger hunt. Okay. This is Mark six, three. And so Jesus is talking, and it says, many people who heard him were amazed. So apparently he's teaching really well. And then the people asked, where did this, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that's been given to him? That he, and he even does miracles. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Okay, there's a lot we could talk about there, but what we are going to talk about is Jesus had four brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and he had sisters also. It's plural, so there's at least two. Now, I've always been sort of impressed with Mary for, you know, multiple reasons, you know, starting at the Christmas story and carrying on, but I had never thought to be so impressed. The lady had five sons and at least two daughters. Are you kidding me? She raised seven children? Have you seen the sound of music? Heaven bless them. I'm like, she was, she was way better of a woman than I even had guessed. And she had five sons. I mean, I only have three. Sheesh. Okay. But what we do learn from this is that James is one of the brothers. As is Judas. Do you see this? Sorry, not the Judas who just, you know, not that Judas. But the, another translation talks about Jude. 
is another translation of that same word. So James and Jude are both brothers of Jesus. So the book of Jude in your Bible, also written by a brother of Jesus. So when I do on a scavenger hunt and follow all the bunny trails, I followed this bunny trail and I went and read Jude. So interesting. We're not going to go there, but I would encourage you to follow that bunny. Super interesting. So when we talk about the apostles' teaching, the book of James is one of them. What's interesting, also, I, another bunny trail I followed while I did this was, what is an apostle? Like, if we're going to study the apostles' teaching, what is an apostle? So I asked my friend Google, and it had lots of thoughts about that. Um, and some of them conflict. And part of it is, is they they, that what you pick up is that they have to have been with Jesus probably the whole time in his ministry, and they have to have seen him resurrected is what makes someone an apostle. So there's for sure like the 12 disciples, which Jesus calls apostles, and then he sends them out on mission. And then he's also, there's, there's other people who be called, become people who are called apostles. And James and Jude would have ended up being one of them. So his brothers end up being apostles. Thus, we're going to study. So on my little, while I'm like studying all this stuff, one of the things that I end up reading about is like, well, what does scripture say about what an apostle is? So I end up in Acts 1. Come with me if you want or don't. Okay, I will tell you what it says. In Acts 1, this is Jesus has died and has risen from the dead and has appeared to a bunch of people and now he has risen and ascended back to heaven. And now the disciples are in an upper room and Peter's there with them and he's kind of leading a discussion because Judas has betrayed him, has betrayed Jesus, and has now committed suicide. So now they're like, oh, we are down an apostle. And so they decide to vote and get a new one. So the reason I'm reading this is I'm trying to figure out, well, how did they decide who should be in the running? So I was reading that. But listen to what I found. Okay. As I'm reading, this is Acts 1.14. They're like talking about who all was there. And then it says in the room, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. <gasps> I like literally gasped out loud when I read it the first time. I was like, oh my gosh, the brothers are in the story. They've showed up. So I can only assume that James is in the room. Okay, so the brothers are in the story. And I was like, well, how did he get there? So then I'm starting to think, well, where else could we find any of the brothers? So then I started looking around. One of the places you find them is in Mark 3. So flip if you want to. Okay. Mark 3, let's go to 21. Actually, I'll start in 20. So it says, Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. So the brothers think he's out of his mind. Interesting. And then a little further down, in like verse 31, it says, Jesus and his brothers arrived outside, and standing outside, they sent someone to call to him. And the crowd was sitting there, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And that's Jesus says, Well, who are my mother and brothers? They are the one who do my father's will. So we see in this story that the brothers and mom are, like, coming after him. For some, they think he's out of his mind. They come to take charge of him because they think he's out of his mind. That's interesting. And then they're trying to get, they're like, hey, can you tell him to come talk to us? Like, they're in this really crowded room. They're like, can you tell him to come talk to us? And he doesn't come talk to them. I just kind of wonder what that's about. So that's one place we see it. And then John 7 says something else. This is John 7, 5. It says, for even 
Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. It tells us really bluntly that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. So maybe that's why in Mark 3 they're going to take charge of him, why they think he's out of his mind, why they're trying to go, can you get out of that house with all those people and come and talk to us for a second? We need to talk some sense into you. I just, I don't know what, I don't know what is motivating them. But there is, there is some, they don't, they don't believe in him. There's some lack of, if, if, he, if Jesus is the Messiah, there is some lack of faith in the brothers, okay? And so right before that, I'm just going to read this to you. So actually, let's back up because it's so good. So when you're going to read the context of the story, what has just happened is Jesus has just fed the 5,000, and then he walks on some water, and then he does this teaching about the bread of life, And then he tells the people around him that you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood or there's no life in you. And then some people responded, well, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And then verse, this is 666, says this in John. From this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to leave me too, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the gift of eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. So this is the context of the story. Like, what is the tone in the disciples? Like, Jesus just said something that people were like, well, that, I mean, people were following him in herds. Like, 5,000 people running around a lake is a lot of people at a lake. And so all of these people, all of this energy, and then he has this teaching, and people go, I don't know. It says many deserted him and didn't follow him anymore. And Jesus says, do you want to leave me too? And I love this line where Peter goes, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. There is something that had happened in the disciples that they had become convinced that Jesus was God. They had become convinced. Now, I, just, I wonder about what's the difference between makes, what makes the disciples convinced and what makes a bunch of other people not convinced. What is happening in that story? Now, here come the brothers. John 7, 1. So after this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews who were there were waiting to take his life. And then the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near. And then that's a feast where Jews go to Jerusalem. Okay? That's the tradition. So the feast of tabernacles is near. And Jesus' brother said to him, and remember, we, in verse 5, we learned that the brothers do not believe in him. So, this is, so you got to hear it in this, in this voice. Jesus' brother said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. We've got sarcasm sitting right here in John 7, right? Because they said, we don't believe in you. He's just going, oh, you want to be a big deal, Jesus? Maybe you should go to Jerusalem. Maybe go, to, go be in public so everybody can see what you're doing. They're mocking him. At the very least, they're like, Jesus, you need an agent. Like, if you're trying to be some big deal, like you hanging out in Galilee was a bad strategy, you should probably go to the big city, right? So at the very least, you go, your strategy is terrible and you need an agent. And at the very worst, they are just mocking him. And they go, we do not believe in you. And so why don't you go? And, cause, and they probably know that the people there want to kill him. This is, the, this is his brothers. All right? So 
And I kind of wonder about this too. You know when Jesus dies on the cross and Jesus says to the apostle John, he says, hey, John, here's Mary, your mother, and hey, here, Mary, here's your son. I got to be got to wondering about these brothers and about James in particular. Is that because they weren't there? I wonder if at the moment Jesus died, did none of his brothers believe in him? And so in that moment, is he go, does he go, hey, John, who you do believe in me? Will you take care of my mom? And mom, stick close to this boy. Treat him like a son. Like, is that what's happening? Is it because of the brother's lack of faith that that happens? Because frankly, I think I would be offended if I'm like, we're the brothers, we will take care of our mother, thank you very much. But Jesus, that's, that wasn't the tone of that. So it doesn't say that explicitly that they weren't there, but it does make me wonder, were they not there? So after all these stories, the next time we see this James is Acts 1. After Jesus has died, resurrected, and they're sitting with Peter in the room, and they're trying to roll some dice to figure out who the next apostle should be. And James is sitting in the room. My question to you is, how did we get from James, who's mocking him and being like, oh, are you a big deal, to I'm going to sit in the room. I'm going to be with him. And then what happens, it's Acts 15, soon after that, James actually becomes the leader of the council in Jerusalem. Like the believers basically elect James as their president. He is the one who's making decisions. You can see this, it's in uh, Acts 15, 13. There's a discussion happening about um, Gentiles, another talk show. But verse 13 says, when they had finished, James spoke up and says, brothers, listen to me. And then he gives a little sermon. Verse 19 says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. The point of that being, James is the one who is like running the meeting. James, the brother of Jesus, is the one running the meeting, and the disciples submit to him and listen to him and follow him. What? James the mocker? James the one who didn't believe? James the one who thought that Jesus was a scam? The one who thought he was crazy? The one who was trying to drag him out of the room and be like, listen, you should come home with us. That James somehow becomes this James, who's leading the church and people are following him. What happened to him? So I found this little gem in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. So this is Paul talking. He wrote 1 Corinthians. And he is talking about kind of what's been happening. Uh, 15, 4, if you're following along. So he says that Jesus died and was buried, and then he was raised on the third day according to scriptures. And then he appeared to Peter, and then he appeared to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all of the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me, Paul, as to one abnormally born. Did you hear that? He appeared to James. He appeared to his brother. That story is not recorded, and I wish it was. Could you imagine this conversation? So the, let's just pretend, if I'm right, that James is not at the cross. The brothers are not at the cross. Jesus dies, raises from the dead, and appeared to his brother. And something in that changed who James was. That is where the story shifts from that one to this one. 
he had an experience with the resurrected Jesus. And he must have been like, oh my, like, I think you are maybe who you said you were. Maybe you actually were God in the flesh. Maybe you just rose from the dead. <laughs> like, okay. James ran into the resurrected Jesus. And I wish I knew what had happened. Like, there's so many stories. Like, I wish they'd written more about those stories of when Jesus was appearing to all these people, right? Like, there's got to be so much gold in there. There's got to be, you're like, wow. I wish I had heard this conversation. Because, especially because Jesus is not a jerk. I might be. I might be like, you know what? You get it now, bro? Like, I don't think he did. I think he was like, I think he talked to him. I think he walked him through his doubts and his pain and his struggles and was like, and now do you see? And he's probably like, and brother, I'm going to need you. My disciples are going to need you. There's something about, like, like, if James is the one who's so chatty and preachy and outspoken and being like, listen, this is how it should be, and why don't you go to Jerusalem? If that is his personality, what happens when that kind of personality comes, encounters the risen Christ, and then starts leading the brothers? He is a strong leader. And I think Jesus was like, I'm going to need you. My brothers are going to need you. And it changed him. So much so that the disciples who followed him around every day followed this brother around. They said when he, what he said went in the book of Acts. Read it. It's crazy because he was a scoffer and he missed it. But James's story makes me think about how, what happens when you don't get it and then something happens and then you do. And it's kind of weird and inexplicable. Like, in this story, it was that he ran into resurrected Jesus who showed up to him. And I think it was by himself is how it sounds, doesn't it? And he appeared to James. And we don't get to pick how God intersects with our story. And we don't get to pick how God intersects with other people's stories. But I know that he is a God who does. And that there's a way that you go, when I don't get this, and then all of a sudden something clicks, and then I do. Something, something happens, and it changes who you are, and it doesn't make sense often, because that's the way God works. It, can, I mean, yes? Do, can I have an amen out there? Can you talk back to me? Is there anybody who's like, yeah, with the, there was moments where I ran into God where I was like, what? Huh? And then all of a sudden, you know something that you didn't know, yeah. right? And something that was like, I don't get it, and then all of a sudden, oh, I do. Like, there's this thing that happens, and there's no explanation for it except God himself. This is who he is and how he works. And it changes everything. So after I did all of this thinking, I went back and I read James again. And I felt really differently. After I had gotten to know the author of this book, and I went and read it again, I was like, oh, that feels really different. Like, for example, right at the end of chapter 1, he says this. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Well, you're talking to a guy whose dad died. Joseph died. He was an orphan, and his mom was a widow. Well, that's interesting. I guess I had never really thought that this book had been written by an orphan whose mother was a widow. Like, it, you, it changes the perspective, right? Like, right in the beginning, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, 
because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Like, I don't know about you. When I read that, I think I read it in like a holier-than-thou voice that's like, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Like, I'm just like, I think I feel, it's like, I'm holy and I have it all figured out. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. This is James who struggled. James who was confused and who wondered and who doubted. That is who he is, and he went through something. He had a journey with God. And then, he says, and then it makes you, eventually, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James is like, I went on a journey, and it was hard, and I learned something. I encountered God, and then something else happened. He's letting you into his story a little bit. He is humble, and he's going, please learn from me. This is a book of wisdom that was learned the hard way, I think. And I think he's given us a little cheat sheet, right? And I think, and it's, I learned that he's, he probably wrote this after Stephen was stoned, the first martyr, and then the Jews scattered. He wrote this to encourage them. And what also is shocking is they listened to him. That tells me something about the status of how James's picture of who he was had changed in the church. That he'd gone from a mocker to a leader and a believer. So much so that he's like, oh, my brothers are scattered everywhere, and I gotta encourage them. If you read, he keeps saying, My dear brothers, my dear brothers, oh my dear brothers. Like he loves these people. Um, this is interesting. This is James 1:19. He says, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak, and slow to become angry. <laughs> I think that's because he was a hothead. And he was like, he was the one who was like, oh, Jesus, like, what? Like, I think that he was like, don't be like me. Actually, be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. Be slow to become angry. He's like, learn from, I did it wrong. Learn from me. This got me. Verse 16. He says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers, because he's like, I was deceived. I missed it. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. Like, can you hear the regret in there? That he's like, my brother was a good and perfect gift from God, and I was deceived, and I missed it. Don't be deceived like I was. And I think there's mercy in there that he's like, and I know it's easy to be deceived. Do you think if James could time travel and go back, so post-resurrection James could time travel back to pre-resurrection James and give him some advice, what do you think he would say? I mean, I'm kind of tempted to be like, he was probably like, uh, duh, your brother is God. Like, right? Like just bluntly, t I don't think it would have worked, right? I don't think, I don't think if he just had been told, hey, listen, this is what the truth is. I don't know if he would have bought it. It doesn't strike me as James's character. I think he would have said to himself, listen, will you pray and ask God to reveal the truth to you? What if, what if, what if you could pray for clarity Go, oh God, would you help me see what's true? Because maybe I am deceived. Like we find, we can figure, piece together that I think that James was a good Jew. 
I think he was trying, but he was missing it. What if, what if his future self could have convinced his former self to be humble and to ask and go, God, would you show me what's true? And I think the other thing is I think he would have prayed for a soft heart. Go, can you soften your heart and open your eyes and wonder? Like, maybe. Can you open your eyes to maybe your brother is the Messiah? I think he would have asked for a heart shift in himself. Because I think that that's what he needed. He needed to be softened, right? And I think that that's because eventually I think it's what changes him. I think it's what causes him to round that corner. Um, later in James, James 4.2 says, you don't receive because you don't ask. You don't receive because you don't ask. And I think James, if he could have time traveled, would have gone back to himself and said, would you ask? Will you ask the God of heaven to reveal to you what truth is? And if your brother is the Messiah, if he's the one you've been waiting for, would you ask God to show you? Would you ask for some clarity? Because what if he was too arrogant and he never asked? Sometimes you receive when you don't ask. Sometimes you ask and you don't receive. But often you don't receive because you don't ask. I want to be an asker. I might be an over-asker. I might be like, ah, uh, can I, right? But I'd rather be an over-asker. And what if James could have talked himself into being someone who was humble and who asked? And then there's this, this verse just keeps ringing to me. This is Psalm 95, 8, and it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. I think that is what this James would have said to this James. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Soften up a little bit. And just wonder. It's okay to wonder, and it's okay not to know. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to ask God to reveal himself to you. And I think that's what's crazy is we don't know how God is going to reveal himself. And it's almost never the way that I think. Even when I'm like praying for someone, I'm like, this is how I'd like you to do it. He does it uh, never. Never he does it that way. He always does it his way, and it's always so much better. So when you have that moment where you go like, I don't get it, I don't understand it, and then all of a sudden something happens, and I do, those moments, they're holy moments, and they're inexplicable moments, and they don't always make sense. Like I was with this, um, one of my, this, I was at camp in the fall, and I was with a bunch of teenagers, and I was supposed to, I'm kind of in charge of whatever. Anyway, so where there's a club happening, which means all these kids are sitting in, like 500 kids are sitting in a room listening to someone talk about Jesus dying on the cross. And I don't even think that he'd started talking yet. I think they were still singing. And all of a sudden, this girl comes out of, of the room, shuts the door behind her, and is sobbing. Well, and it's my job at this moment to be like, what's happening, sweetie? How can I help you? And so I go, hey, hey, what's going on? And her leader is right behind her, and she's just sobbing. And I was like, what is happening? And she goes, God loves me. Like, she had just all of a sudden, and I was like, well, yes, he does. Like, and so I just got to be with her in this really holy moment where, like, he hadn't even said anything. The guest speaker hadn't said anything. All of a sudden, she had just got, become unraveled and was like, oh, my gosh, he loves me. And it was, it was the craziest moment because eventually they, the guy starts talking, and they're inside talk, sharing the gospel and doing the thing. And I am outside with this girl who is having this holy holy moment. And 
it's not supposed to happen then. It's supposed to happen later, like after the guy tells the whole story, and then they're supposed to go, oh, now I see. Like, that's a lot. No, that is not how God works. He can do whatever he wants. And are we the people who are going, I'm here to, I'm just, I don't know how this is going to go. But the moment that I go from getting it, from not getting it to getting it, there's the Lord. Like, I know the moment that I got it. I was a little girl. I was laying in my bed, and I didn't even know, I think I was like three. And I was like, God, I just want you. I want you. And then all of a sudden I felt him. And I was like, oh, oh. I didn't have it, and then I did. I don't know. Just a really simple, holy moment. I'm going to tell you the moment that Paul got it. I have, to, uh, I have to edit it a little bit because it's not fully appropriate to preach from a stage at church. But, um, but he was in Sweden, and he was reading a Bible, and all of a sudden, bam, and he said, holy shenanigans. He said, this is, this is true. Holy shenanigans, this is true. Like, he, that was the moment where he was like, I didn't understand, and then all of a sudden, and then I saw. And he just knew. What? And he didn't even know what he was reading. Like, it was, it's not like something really profound just jumped out of the scripture, I don't think. It just was like this moment where all of a sudden he didn't know, and then he did. Like, C.S. Lewis has this story where he says, <laughs> he goes, he goes, I, he, C.S. Lewis doesn't know when he became a Christian. I just think it's hilarious because he's like a professional Christian, right? So, but he says, I went to walk to the library, and when I left my house, I was not a Christian. And when I got to the library, I was. That is C.S. Lewis's conversion story, the walk to the library. We just don't know. So I think my challenge to you is today is could we be a people who ask? Like, if you go, I don't get this. Or like, or like I, maybe I get this a little bit, but I don't get it all like that. Or like, I watch all these people who like, oh, like they, they get something that I'm like, I don't understand what you have. I don't think I have that. It's okay. Like, would we be people who would be, be brave enough to pray a James prayer, a dangerous prayer that is like, I don't get it. Would you show it to me? What if the God of the universe could intersect with us in a way and in a moment that you go, oh, I get it, in a way that I didn't get it before? Would we be brave enough to ask him to do that, that the God who knows how to communicate with you in a way that you would actually understand, they go, would you do that? Would you communicate like that to me? Would you do to me what you did to James, what you did to all of these people? And all these people who like get something that maybe I just, I don't, I don't get it. Could we ask him? If you ever look at anyone, you go, I think you understand God in a way that I don't. Would you go, God, would you teach me? Teach me more. Give me more of you. Help me to understand you in a new way. Because we all move from here to here. And we probably do it again and again. And I want to be an asker. I want to be someone who asks God to do that. And then the next prayer, I think, would just be if today we hear his voice, that we wouldn't harden our heart, that we would be soft toward God. Because I do think God is gracious and he is capable of tracking us down and knocking us upside the head. That is true. And there's something sweet that happens when we go, God, I don't get it. 
And I wish I did. Or I wish I understood what everyone else seems to understand. Right? Like, I would have loved to have been there the day that James walked back into that room with the disciples and he was like, uh, guys, this is what happened earlier today and uh, sorry about all of that and I'm in. Like, I would have loved to have seen what had happened to him. I know that, like, in the work that I do with teenagers, when I get to be there for that moment when all of a sudden a light bulb turns on and the Holy Spirit does what only the Holy Spirit can do, it, there's nothing like it in all the world. But it got to go. It's about him and what he does and not me and my plan and what I think and how I think it should happen. So if you could go to God with your hands open and go, would you reveal yourself to me? Or it might even just be like, if you're real, will you show yourself to me in a way that I can understand? That is a legitimate prayer. So I would say to you, I would echo what Scott said earlier. If you want someone to pray with you, there's just, we're gonna, there's people kind of scattered around the back of the room and I'll actually be over here if you want to pray with me. But just if you could walk up to someone and go, will you just pray that with me? That if God wants to show himself to me, that he would it would literally take 15 to 20 seconds to pray that prayer with somebody. But sometimes it's just nice to have someone join you in it. Because I think sometimes spiritual journeys can be lonely. So people are around to pray for you or just grab the person next to you. Let's go, let's pray that together. And I would just challenge you to go, Lord, can I have more of you? that I want to understand you better. Anything else, anything else that I don't really get about you, will you show it to me? Because I want to get you. I want to die and get to heaven and go, oh, it's you, I know you. Not like, oh, I kind of knew a little bit about you, but like, I want to know him when I see his face. And so I keep praying, God, teach me more of you.